Hello and welcome to Counterthought, a podcast dedicated to my counterthoughts about mainstream media, politics, and culture, and the impact on our nation. I am your host, Brian Fletter. You can follow this podcast on its Facebook page, Counterthought Podcast, on Instagram at counter underscore thought, and on Twitter at counter underscore podcast. Hello and welcome to Counterthought. This is episode 21, and we're going to spend time during this episode talking about standing up against power. If you are a faithful listener, or you've listened to, you know, probably about half my episodes, you might have noticed that a lot of it has to do with what is currently going on in the state of our country in 2021 and going back into 2020, uh, looking at everything that's taking place from a government standpoint. Um, especially regarding COVID and other overreaches by the current administration. So this episode is going to include a little bit about COVID, but it's more so related to a couple other topics that I've also discussed, such as the NFL, uh, the NBA, which I have not dived into, and also parents speaking up at uh, school boards. Now, why this topic? Why now? Well, there has been a whole lot of changes that have gone on since March of 2020. As we know, we all lived it. Over the past 20 months, we have seen the ability of our federal government to shut down businesses, no matter the size. We've seen the ability of our government to write checks to try to spur the economy or keep the economy going during a shutdown. We've seen Uh, weaponizations of certain parts of certain uh, agencies within the federal government. We've seen uh, exposures going on within the government. We've seen riots and looting and increases in crime and everything going on. And then whenever you try to bring that to light or have it acted upon, you see uh, attorneys generals, governors, the FBI and other agencies and so on and so forth not doing anything about it. So the power is flexed when it maybe shouldn't be, and then not when it should be. The scariest part of that is when the power is flexed when it shouldn't be. And like I said, I've talked a few different episodes now about the the screws being tightened when it comes to COVID and forcing everyone basically to get vaccinated. Now, The deniers would say, oh, well, they're not forcing you to do it. You have a choice, you know. Well, your choice is, in most cases, is be unemployed or get vaccinated. That's not much of a choice. People are going to look at that and say, hmm, keep my job or get vaccinated. You know, that's just one instance. And probably more times than not, they're going to choose to keep their job. But let's get into, let's get into the standing up to power. We're going to start with the NBA. Now, those of you who may not be interested in sports, that is fine. I'm going to educate you. There have been things going on in 2021 within the NFL and and now the NBA related related to COVID vaccines. You know, in 2020, the NBA was, they had to shut down their season in March, like when the whole country shut down. And then they were able to start it back up in a bubble down here in Orlando and finish out their season I think they started back up in August or June and were able to play in a bubble for, I think, two months, 
finished the playoffs based on where the season ended, like a week after where the season ended in March of 2020, and then finished the playoffs, had a champion, and then started back up a little bit later. I think it was in December of 2020 for their season that they just finished uh, this past summer. But most of that was, you know, before vaccines were available. Well, now the 2021-2022 season is getting ready to start. Training camps have started. The season tips off, I believe, in two weeks, uh, mid-October. But vaccines have been available for everyone to get since March or April of this year. So the NBA is taking a different approach. So going back to September 28th of this year, the NBA released a statement to their teams detailing how the unvaccinated players will be tested far more often than their vaccinated colleagues and face additional restrictions. Some of the things that the unvaccinated players will have to uh, experience or go through are the unvaccinated players will not be able to eat in the same room with the vaccinated teammates or staff. The unvaccinated players must have lockers as far away from vaccinated players as possible. And unvaccinated players must stay masked and at least six feet away from all other attendees in any other team meeting. So you're going to sit them in a corner, basically. Also, unvaccinated players will be required to remain at their residence when they are in their home market. So down here in Orlando, we have the Orlando Magic. So when a player who's unvaccinated that plays for the Orlando Magic, in this case, Jonathan Isaac, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, he will have to stay at his house. And then the unvaccinated individual when traveling will have to stay on hotel property and can't leave except if they have to buy groceries or take kids to school and the like. Unvaccinated players will also not be able to visit high-risk settings such as restaurants, bars, clubs, entertainment venues, or large indoor gatherings. And then it is still being finalized the last time I checked that the protocols for testing and the frequency and team travel uh, will still is still being uh, hashed out. So across the entire NBA, as of now, there are right around 90%, maybe a couple of percentage points more of total players and staff vaccinated. But there are a few, and I would say prominent players with the, from the NBA that are not vaccinated. And those include Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic, Bradley Beal, who was an all-star this past season uh, for the Washington Wizards, Kyrie Irving, which is one of the top point guards in the NBA, a multiple all-star, uh, plays for the Brooklyn Nets. Those are a few of the high-profile athletes within the NBA, players within the NBA, that are not vaccinated. And then you also have Andrew Wiggins. He is the fourth one that we're going to talk about here. And he initially wasn't vaccinated, but as of this week, he's vaccinated. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But Jonathan Isaac. So Jonathan Isaac is like the small forward for the Orlando Magic. He's young. He's 24 years old. And during the team's media day, which was a, a week or so ago, he sat down and talked about it because it came up early on or months ago. He you know, was talking about he, had, he, he was hesitant to get the vaccine. So obviously the media followed up. And in his past, Jonathan Isaac, he has had covid so he's already had COVID. He has antibodies, which you probably don't hear a lot about on the news or discussed um, in the media, but he has antibodies. He's had COVID. He's gone through that. Like I said, he's 24 years old. 
and a professional basketball player. Can't get too much more in shape than that. But he was asked about it at Media Day whether or not he would get vaccinated or not. And he cited a few things as to why he isn't. So he mentioned, you know, surviving COVID. Like I said, he has the antibodies and studies are showing that that natural immunity, which means you had COVID and survived and you have the antibodies from being sick with COVID are actually proving to be more uh, or a stronger resistance against the Delta variant that has been going around here for the last uh, three, four months or so. He also cited that his age, again, 24 years old, and his physical health. You know, professional basketball player, they play, his average minutes per game is somewhere in the high high 30s of high-intensity basketball. And we know that COVID feasts on comorbidities, especially obesity and the comorbidities that come from obesity. Isaac also talked about the illogical NBA policy. As I just mentioned, you know that unvaccinated players have to sit in a different area on the team plane, have to sit basically in the corner of a team meeting room while watching film. They have to be with at least six feet from the other other players. Uh, they have to make sure that their lockers are as far away as possible from the unvaccinated players. I mean, from the vaccinated players. They can't go out to restaurants or bars and other places while traveling with the team. They have to stay at the hotel. But he talked about how illogical the policy is saying that, okay, I have to sit in a different area when on the team plane and in a meeting room. But then when the game starts, I'm allowed to go out there, you know, huffing and puffing, swapping sweat, saliva spit, you know, whatever goes on while you're playing the game, yelling and battling underneath the boards and guarding, guarding your opponents and everything and chest bumping. Like in that, I'm not supposed to be worried about contracting COVID during that. I guess maybe the NBA is thinking, okay, well, you know, the other players that are out there playing, 90% of them are vaccinated, so there's not going to be any COVID on the court. Well, as we're finding out, the vaccines are wearing off faster than we expected. And the vaccines also do allow transmission of COVID. So even the vaccinated are transmitting COVID or transferring COVID to other individuals. And then Jonathan Isaac, uh, this past week on a podcast called Relatable with Ali Beth Stuckey. May have heard of it before. Uh, with his, his interview with Ali Beth, he talked about his personal convictions. Talked about his personal convictions and how we are at a pivotal moment in history and that we need to stand firm in our personal convictions. You know, basically, not give in. Stay true to your personal convictions. Don't give in and find a way to work through it. He said this government is setting a precedent in light of an emergency that your personal autonomy, convictions, and freedom is up for negotiation. Lose your job or get vaccinated, right? But he also said that he encourages all of us to be courageous and to stand up for what you believe in and to trust your personal convictions. In addition to Jonathan Isaac is Bradley Beal, He is the starting shooting guard for the Washington Wizards. He is one of the top scorers in the NBA the past couple of seasons. Former Florida Gator, I might add. But Beal, he's taken a different approach than Jonathan Isaac, so he's explained his reasons why. But, you know, he's I guess hasn't maybe done as many interviews about why. 
But Beale, like Isaac, Beale has had COVID. He had it over the summer, actually, which is why he, even though he was voted to the Olympic team, he could not participate. And right now he's unvaccinated because he's currently within that 90-day window that says if you've had COVID, you know, you have to wait at least either 60 or 90 days to get the vaccine. So he definitely has the antibodies. I mean, he's within that window. He definitely has the antibodies and it's being shown that antibodies can last months longer, six plus months, eight plus months. So Beal has the antibodies. And during his media day, because all the, with the season starting up, all the NBA teams have their media day. And during the Wizards media day, Beal was up at the, the podium being asked by the media. And he turned around and asked them a question. He asked the media, why is the vaccine being forced upon the players when a vaccinated person can get COVID and transmit COVID? Basically, what's the difference between an unvaccinated individual and a vaccinated individual? And then pile that on to what Jonathan Isaac was saying about, okay, well, I have to do all these things to socially distance myself and not to expose myself to the general public and increase the chances of getting COVID. But then I can play the game and we know that COVID is able to be transmitted from vaccinated individuals. So how can you guarantee that I'm not going to get COVID by playing or practicing with the players or going home and living with my family? You know, what, what is the difference? And then Beal clarified the next day that he is considering getting vaccinated, but he is not anti-vaccine. He just wants more time. And that's the latest update I have about that. I'm not sure what his current status is, but his season kicks off again, like all the others, in about two weeks. And then you have Kyrie Irving. So Kyrie Irving is one of the top three point guards in the NBA. I mean, he's, he's kind of wishy-washy with certain things. He's had injuries. He's has aspirations once his NBA career, you know, ends. But Kyrie is not vaccinated. And he's probably getting the most publicity about this because he is one of the top players and he's on the projected top team, the Brooklyn Nets. One of the teams highly favored to win the championship this season. But Kyrie is not vaccinated, and during his media day, when asked questions about it, he repeatedly responded by stating that the matter is private and for the media to respect his privacy. So a much different approach than Jonathan Isaac and Bradley Beal, Kyrie Irving doesn't even want to talk about it. Now, the wrinkle for Kyrie's situation is that Brooklyn is New York City, and New York City has a mandate for vaccination if you want to be in any kind of indoor venue. So based on the New York City policy, Kyrie Irving is unable to play in his home games, which would be 41 home games. Now, the NBA and the N in the NBA Players Association, they've recently agreed to a salary penalty equal to 191.6 of a player's salary for each game an unvaccinated player misses due to local COVID vaccine mandates. So there you go. That's another instance of tightening the screws, you know, trying to get the players to comply. If you live in a city where there is a mandate for vaccination to be within an arena, you will, and you are not vaccinated, you will lose part of your salary each game. And right now, there that includes New York City, San Francisco, and L.A. 
And for Kyrie, since he's one of the top players in the NBA, that means he's going to be losing out on a lot of money. His salary is in between 38 and $40 million a year. So he is projected to lose about $380,000 per game, per home game, which again is 41 games. And as of this week, Kyrie hasn't said if he will or won't get vaccinated. And the Nets are most likely preparing as if he is unable to practice and to play. Now, Andrew Wiggins is our fourth player. He is a small forward for the Warriors, and the Warriors play in San Francisco. But they have one of the mandates for the vaccine. So Andrew Wiggins, like Kyrie Irving, also will be getting fined for missing his home games. Now, for Andrew, his backstory, his Wiggins, his backstory, in March of 2021, he said he wasn't going to get vaccinated. But then when his media day came around, the Warriors media day came around, he was asked about it. And Wiggins says it wasn't anyone in the media's business about his vaccination status. And he applied for a religious exemption, but the NBA denied that. Well, on Monday this week, October 4th, Wiggins said he is now vaccinated. So about a week, maybe 10 days went by from his media day to becoming vaccinated. And can you guess what happened during that time period? The NBA and the NBA Players Association agreed to that salary penalty. So Wiggins gave in. Wiggins went and got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine so he could play in the home opener, which is on October 21st. And he stood to lose more than $350,000 per home game. So Wiggins caved. And I'm not getting onto him for that. Like, (laughs) I mean, yeah, making 30-something million a year would be fantastic. And $350,000 times 40, you know, like 12 plus million or something would be terrible to lose. So I can't really say like I would just stand there and keep my convictions like Jonathan Isaac is. But Jonathan Isaac doesn't have that mandate. But listen to what Wiggins said when he admitted that he is now vaccinated. To me, this is, this is sad. It's sad because it shouldn't have to come to this. But just, just listen to this. Wiggins said, and you can hear the disappointment, the only options were to get vaccinated or to not play in the NBA. It was a tough decision. Hopefully it works out in the long run, and in 10 years I'm still healthy. I guess to do certain stuff, to work, I guess you don't own your body. That's what it comes down to. If you want to work in society today, then I guess they made the rules of what goes in your body and what you do. Hopefully there's a lot of people out there that are stronger than me and keep fighting. Stand for what they believe and hopefully it works out for them. You can just you can just sense his disappointment in himself. And it's sad cuz it, it it didn't have to be treated that way. But he did what he felt was best for him and for his family. Instead of sacrificing $350,000 per home game, he decided to put aside whatever reason he wasn't getting vaccinated before and chose that it was best to provide financially for his family. And I believe I read that Wiggins is now the only person in his immediate family and extended family that is now vaccinated. But it's sad. This is what our federal government and local politicians and businesses are choosing to do to people. A couple episodes ago, I talked about how the Biden overreach of forcing companies that have 100 employees or more to get all their employees vaccinated, any employee that is not vaccinated, 
face up to a fourteen thousand dollar fine per employee. You know, basically forcing businesses to have everyone become vaccinated in order to return to work. People are being forced to choose between their livelihood and a vaccine. And a vaccine that we're finding out with this Delta variant is doing less and less and less. Yes, it prevents hospitalization or, you know, 90 plus percent likelihood of going into a hospital. But as far as the transmission rates and the infection rates, the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated is closing. And as time goes by, we're getting more and more therapeutics. So it's sad. And you could hear that disappointment or sense the disappointment in Wiggins' decision. He didn't want to do it, but he chose to do it because he felt that providing for his family financially, it seems, was worth giving up his body, so to speak, to get vaccinated. And some also prominent players in the NBA have come to the defense, you know, of these, these, four, these four players, Bradley Beal, Jonathan Isaac, Andrew Wiggins, Kyrie Irving. One of them is Draymond Green and the other is LeBron James. Draymond Green plays with Andrew Wiggins. Draymond Green said that I think you have to honor people's feelings and their own personal beliefs, and I think that's been lost. Green goes on to say, and it sucks it's been lost because you say you live in the land of the free, but you're not giving anyone freedom because you're making people do something essentially. That goes against everything America stands for or supposedly stands for. Then LeBron, he always likes to speak out on social issues, and this one he finally got right. LeBron says that, or said, we're talking about people's bodies and well-being. I don't think I personally should get involved in what other people should do for their bodies and livelihoods. I know that I was very skeptical about it all, but after doing my research, I felt like it was best suited for not only me, but for my family and friends, alluding to himself getting vaccinated. LeBron then goes on to say, you guys know me. Anything I talk about, I don't talk about other people and what they should do. I speak for me and my family. That's what it's about. We're talking about individual bodies. We're not talking about something political or racism or police brutality. We're talking about people's bodies and well-being. I don't think I personally should get involved in what other people should do for their bodies and livelihoods. That would be like me talking about if somebody should take this job or not. Listen. You have to do what's best for you and your family. And then you have other NBA players or former NBA players who completely disagree with the decisions of, you know, not to be vaccinated. And as Cantor is one of them, he's a forward for the Boston Celtics. And as he gets put on TV a lot, I'm not really sure why. Maybe people like how he talks. I'm not, I don't know. But he said in a recent appearance on CNN that he was shocked when he heard what LeBron said. And that LeBron's stance is ridiculous because Cantor... He thinks that LeBron, I mean, he is still the face of the league. He's been the face of the league for almost two decades now. But he thinks LeBron's stance or his response in support of, you know, making your own decision of being vaccinated or not. He thinks that that shows a lack of leadership for LeBron, from LeBron. And that if LeBron came out and said, yeah, we all need to get vaccinated, guys, let's go. Then more players would get vaccinated. And then you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Comes off a little nutty in this one. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, one of the top five greatest players of all time. Kareem, and I'm not sure his level of involvement with the NBA. I know he makes TV appearances and so on and so forth, but who knows if he had anyone within the NBA telling him to 
to say this or if this is just his own thoughts. But Kareem took a more extreme stance than Cantor. Kareem basically doesn't want to listen to any player's reason for not being vaccinated. Kareem just wants everyone to do what he wants them to do. And he wants all unvaccinated players to be kicked out of the NBA. Kicked out. Oh, that's nice of you, Kareem. It's very nice of you. I don't want to get vaccinated. And you want me to lose my millions of dollars. Thank you. Which won't only affect me, it'll affect my family. So Kareem the extreme. And talk about an opinion that's not based on facts from scientific data. This is an extremely authoritarian take. But Kareem, he can get away with it. The NBA vaccination policy doesn't affect him, to my knowledge. He's not a player. He's made his money. He has his commercials. And he was already vaccinated because of his age and being in the high-risk group. So what does he care? He just mouth off whenever he wants, talking about, hey, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you shouldn't even be in the NBA. In the NBA. No pay. Fired. Switching gears a little bit, though, from the NBA to the NFL, there are NFL players that are against COVID policy and the, vaccina- uh, the vaccination portion of the policy. A few episodes ago, you can go back and find it. Uh, it's in one of the, the teens. But I talked about the NFL policy and, and what it was. And the NFL, obviously, is like five weeks into its season. This is week five this week. So recently in August, the NFL was going through their training camps and talking to various players about the upcoming season and obviously uh, about COVID. At the start of the season, 93% of NFL players were either partially or fully vaccinated. Now going back to the start of training camp and a little bit earlier in the summer when the policy was announced and released, the first player who opposed it and got a lot of media attention, a lot of uh, traffic on Twitter and couple interviews after that is Cole Beasley. Cole Beasley is a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills. And Beasley got the pushback to the NFL policy rolling from other unvaccinated players. Beasley said he'd rather retire than be vaccinated. He also said that he isn't vaccinated because he doesn't need to be. Similar to one of the reasons Andrew Wiggins listed his age and his health. Beasley is in his 20s. And he is a professional football player. He's not a lineman. He's a wide receiver. Probably has 6 or 8% body fat. And no health issues because they screen for that every season for every player. Then you have Kirk Cousins. He's a bigger figure within the NFL. He's one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the league. Plays for the Minnesota Vikings. But Cousins began training camp And he actually had to miss the first few days because he came into close contact with a teammate, Kellen Mond, a backup QB, who had COVID. And upon his return, Kirk Cousins told the media, I think the vaccination decision is a private health matter for me. And I'm going to keep it as such. He also said, I do believe that as a leader of the team, it's very important to follow the protocols to avoid this close contact, because that is what it's going to come down to. Did you have close contact? So I'm going to be vigilant about avoiding a close contact. He says, I've even thought about, should I just set up literally plexiglass around where I sit so that it could never happen again? I've thought about it. 
because I'm going to do whatever it takes. So we're going to avoid this close contact thing. Sounds similar to the NBA. And I look forward to making sure I play every game this year. And when I last checked, Cousins is still not vaccinated. And he has not missed any of the first four games. Then you have Lamar Jackson staying in the QB room for the Baltimore Ravens. Top five QB, top five talent in the NFL. Lamar Jackson, like some of the NBA players I mentioned, he's had COVID. <laughs> he actually had a run of bad luck. He had COVID twice within eight months. And at the time of the start of training camp in August, Lamar Jackson said that vaccination is a personal decision and that he'll continue to talk to doctors to learn more. And in September, an unverified report came out that Jackson received the vaccine, but when he was asked about it, his response was, quote, I want to keep that between me and my family and the doctors. That's all. End quote. And then Cam Newton. Cam Newton is, no, is not with the team. He was with the Patriots going into and through the summer before being released so that Mac Jones could be the starting quarterback. But going through OTAs and, and other drills and practices with the team, Cam Newton was not vaccinated. And he, at the time, was with the New England Patriots. Now, Urban Meyer with the Jacksonville Jaguars and Bill Belichick, they both made comments that made it seem like vaccination status went into their decision-making process of whether to cut or keep players, part of the evaluation process. But Urban Meyer and Bill Belichick both deny including that vaccination status as part of their decision-making process. But Meyer did say that availability is part of his decision-making. And upon hearing that, the NFL Players Association opened an investigation into Urban Meyer's comments. And isn't that rich? The NFL Players Association, who has to sign off on these policies that get placed by the NFL, signed off on the NFL policy, so they already agreed to what's in there. And then whenever they hear wind of a coach mention vaccination status and being part of the evaluation process, they want to do an investigation to see if that's true? Well, if you're the NFLPA and you're so concerned, concerned now, if you're so concerned that a player could be cut from a team because they're not vaccinated, shouldn't you have thought of that and shown a little more concern whenever you were in the negotiation process with the NFL? Where were you in the months before whenever this policy was being drafted and agreed to? Now you act all shocked, like you can't believe this could be a factor and whether or not to trim when trimming down your team to 53-man roster. All right, so that wraps it up for the NFL, the NBA, the sports world. And we're going to jump now to parents against school boards. So you may have noticed over the past few months on the news, you'll see parents speaking out against at school board meetings against a curriculum that involves critical race theory, or CRT. And more recently, you are seeing parents speak out at school board meetings when votes are about to be had of whether or not to have a mask mandate for children to wear, uh, basically from kindergarten through 12th grade. These parents have started to speak up in order to stand up for what they don't want their children to be taught and for what they don't want their children to be forced to do, especially for the mask when there isn't any scientific data-driven reason for doing so. And since public schools and public school boards are funded by the taxes of the families in those districts, the parents have a voice and a right to speak up. And this has been going on for a couple of months. Um, 
going back through the summer for the masks and the CRT before that. But the mask is most recent. Mask mandates are most recent, so it's getting the most um, news time right now. But this week, on Monday, October 4th, the DOJ issued a press release. The DOJ? The Department of Justice? Yep. The DOJ on Monday, October 4th of this week, issued a press release regarding parents and threats to school board members. And here are some of the excerpts. Quote, citing an increase in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school board members, teachers, and workers in our nation's public schools. Today, Attorney General Merrick B. Garland directed the FBI and U.S. Attorney's offices to meet in the next 30 days with federal, state, tribal, territorial, and local law enforcement leaders to discuss strategies for addressing this disturbing trend. Continues. According to the Attorney General's memo, or memorandum, Efforts are expected to include the creation of a task force consisting of representatives from the department's criminal division, national security division, civil rights division, the executive office for U.S. attorneys, the FBI, the community relations service, and the office of justice programs to determine how federal enforcement tools can be used to prosecute these crimes and ways to assist state, tribal, territorial, and local law enforcement where threats of violence may not constitute federal crimes. So they're going to have their hand in everything. The press release continues. The Justice Department will also create specialized training and guidance for local school boards and school administrators. This training will help school board members and other potential victims understand the type of behavior that constitutes threats, how to report threatening conduct to the appropriate law enforcement agencies, and how to capture and preserve evidence of threatening conduct to aid in the investigation and prosecution of those crimes. My question is, who defines the behavior that constitutes a threat? Also, how will it be defined? Could a threat be raising your voice or shouting during your one to two minutes that you have in front of the school board? Could a threat be peacefully protesting outside the office of the school board during a meeting or before a meeting? Could include protesting outside of a school. You know, so who's setting the definition and who defining it? The National Security Board Association, NSBA, wrote a letter to the DOJ, how about that, a few days before on September 30th, about these threats. The letter says, quote, America's public schools and its education leaders are under an immediate threat. The National School Boards Association respectfully asks for federal law enforcement and other assistance to deal with the growing number of threats of violence and acts of intimidation occurring across the nation. The letter then goes on to list all these different federal agencies, federal laws they recommend to be used, and even suggest methods of investigation and prosecution. And included in this letter, which is, I think, three pages long, if I remember correctly, The term domestic terrorism is used. The letter talks about how there are organizations within the United States that are threatening against them. And they reference 20 instances within this letter, tying back to different news articles and other sources of acts of threatening activity. Now, I'm not minimizing the seriousness of a threat. Like if there is a legitimate threat, you need to go to the proper authorities for sure. But like I I just asked, You know, what's the definition of a threat? 
and who is defining the definition of a threat. And then, like we read from that press release in the FBI, they're going to have their hands in everything. They're not only going to help local law enforcement with these threats if local law enforcement can't handle the workload, I guess. But the FBI said they're also going to be helping like with a tip line and giving recommendations on what to do and how to do it. So they're going to be like a big oversight committee, basically. And is the FBI going to send agents out to people's houses? Is the FBI going to put agents out at school boards, school board meetings? And is that seen as intimidation? Will parents not show up because they think that, oh, the FBI is there. And if I say something, then I could get arrested. You don't want to mess with the federal government. So is this an intimidation tactic? I don't know. But we have seen over the last four to five years that the FBI has been used as a weapon against civilians. So make of that what you will. Now, there are some legitimate things listed in the FBI press release and in the letter from the school board association. But if I had to put money on it, I think this is a this is an intimidation tactic. Because like I just said, we've seen the DOJ, the FBI be weaponized against civilians based on false information. And if this is an intimidation tactic, just another way for the federal government to get into all aspects of our lives, whether or not they have a jurisdiction or not, then this means that the DOJ is continuing to be politicized under the Biden administration which is something he promised would not happen. And so far, the involved parents at these meetings are fighting this because they know if they do lay down, then the DOJ will abuse the power now and in the future. So this is definitely a story to watch to see how this plays out. School years have have started. I'm not sure the frequency of school board meetings over the course of a school year, especially now that the curriculum has been set and these mandates have been decided upon. But it's definitely a story to watch to see if anyone is arrested. Then if someone is arrested or a group is arrested, what were they actually, what was their threatening behavior? And does it really constitute as threatening behavior? Now, the last instance of standing up to power that I want to talk about is the frontline hospital employees, specifically in the state of New York, who have chosen to either resign or get fired because they don't want to comply with the vaccination mandate in New York. There are thousands of employees that work in healthcare, in hospitals, in long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and other places in the state of New York. In fact, there are 650,000 employees, and thousands of those 650,000 people are not giving in to the mandate, which in some areas has caused shortages. In a rural area of New York, it led to a hospital having to close down the maternity ward because they didn't have enough staff to deliver babies. Those mothers had to go to a different hospital to give birth. Or I guess they could have done an alternative and give birth at home, which I'm sure for most women is not ideal. But these thousands of workers that are taking a stand, it's leading to shortages. Now, the current governor, she's new on the scene because Andrew Cuomo resigned. So she's new on the scene and she has, you know, been seeing this through this mandate. The mandate went into effect a week ago, so like the last week of September. And with the shortages, the New York governor, she could deal with it in a few different ways. She could fill the shortage by declaring a state of emergency that would enable healthcare professionals that are licensed outside of New York, recent graduates and retirees to practice in the state. And that is, you know, something that was used, utilized in 2020. You might remember stories of the state of New York whenever the ship was sent there and the Javits Center was 
um, converted to to be a place to for COVID patients and so on and so forth. And New York, the state of New York, or especially New York City, was offering to have nurses come from other states where they weren't necessarily needed, didn't have high COVID rates yet, to come up there and you know offering them higher pay than what they were getting at their current job, you know, to come up there and and help with the emergency. But the governor also said within a recent interview that there are no excuses to not be vaccinated and that a shortage of workers is completely avoidable. No excuses? No religious excuses? Hmm, that seems troublesome that she believes that. And pay attention, she said that the shortage of workers is completely avoidable. So she could use emergency powers. Okay, maybe that's what she means, completely avoidable. There's also rumors that she could bring in the National Guard. That just seems a little over the top, but hey, if you need it, I guess you do it. But it's unbelievable. Saying that it's completely avoidable and then not looking in the mirror and saying it's completely avoidable if I didn't do what is being done with the mandate. A shortage is completely avoidable because you could have not created a mandate. And the federal government too. But the governor's opinion is a microcosm of vaccine mandates on the national level. She believes the problem is avoidable because she believes everyone should get vaccinated. Whereas the opposing belief is the problem is avoidable if there was no mandate. Now, I've said in a previous episode that, hey, if you're working with COVID patients or patients that are in certain units within a hospital, like an ICU or, you know, being treated for certain comorbidities that COVID really wrecks havoc on and has caused people to die, then I'm fine with requiring those frontline workers to be vaccinated. But if you're talking about someone who's getting outpatient surgery and the nurses or techs in that area need to be vaccinated, eh, I have a little bit of, I have an issue with that. But to say that it's completely avoidable because everyone should just get vaccinated, there's no excuse. It's completely avoidable if you didn't have the mandate in the first place. Now to close out, the reason I chose this topic, standing up against power, is because there are public and private entities and governments that are taking power away from us, the American people, and too many of us don't care or are unaware. Now, this episode only contained a few instances of power grabs, but there are many more. Many more. Just think about all that the government was able to do to businesses in 2020. Shut down the entire economy, the largest economy in the world. And now in 2021, certain things are still shut down. Or if they were able to open, they're still having to deal with the changing of the recommendations from the CDC and from our federal government. There's still shortages of employment. Restaurants are offering wages 50% higher than what they were before the pandemic just to try to get people to come back to work. And look at the actions that are forced upon us by not only our government, but also our employers. Think about the precedent that's being set. Think about it. What they've been able to do in 2020 and 2021, like in law, sets precedent for what could be done in 2022, 2023, 2024, for sure the next pandemic. But I brought this up because I fear that what people don't understand or don't believe is that if you don't stand up for your rights and beliefs and push back against the power, then the person with the power wins and can use that victory to gain even more power. And with each dose of additional power, you, we, we become more powerless. All right, that's it for this episode. Remember to subscribe and engage with me on Instagram at counter underscore thought. 
on Twitter at counter underscore podcast and on the Counterthought podcast page on Facebook. Thank you for listening to Counterthought.